Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. In 1998, Congress passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. The goal of this law it was to prevent people from sharing music, video, and other creative works without a license to do so. And I've talked about this before in, uh, in the two discussions we've done previously on copyright. Now, the law was probably largely a response to what happened with Napster. If you weren't around for the Napster days and haven't listened to the previous episodes, Napster was a file-sharing service centered on music, and people would have MP3s of songs they liked on their computer. You connect into the central Napster server, it would upload your list of music, and you could get a list of other people's music, you could search for music by name, and then you could download music directly from other users' computers. It was peer-to-peer file sharing with a centralized index. And if you were on that network at the time, especially as a teenager, it was pretty amazing, because if there was a song you liked, it was pretty easy to find. You could get just that song, you could get multiple songs. And in the days where there was no music rental service, uh, it was... It was pretty great. In fact, in those days, you couldn't just buy one song like you can now. Um, you had to buy a whole album. And so if you were trying to save some money, you know, maybe you didn't have the money to buy a whole album or, or whatever, it was pretty appealing. Um, it wasn't necessarily the most ethical thing, but certainly if you're a high school student and don't have a job, it was pretty appealing. And maybe you'd prefer to buy some albums. Uh, maybe you'd prefer to buy one or two songs because you don't like most of the songs in the album. You didn't have that option, and and it, that was a big um, that was a big motivating factor for why people would um, would do that. Now, this is the same time frame that DVDs were really starting to take over the market. the The days of Videotapes like uh, VHS cassettes, you know, stuff you put in your VH, your VCR, were were still going on, but they were sort of nearing an end, and so DVDs became kind of the new thing. This is also the time when broadband started to become reasonably common. Not huge market penetration, but there were a lot of areas where it was possible to get broadband at your house if you were so inclined, and. In those days, getting getting broadband and getting a high-speed internet connection at your house was a big deal. You were way faster than the other people, and it was a night and day difference. You know, always on connectivity and, um, you know, separate from your phone line, you you had all these, um, all this ability to do high-speed downloads and uploads and stuff. It's what made Napster possible, and it, it made accessing a lot of other stuff a lot faster and, and nicer. And it was fast enough that it was possible to start sharing movies. Now, uh, in the days of videotape, um, there were some incompatible analog standards for video in different parts of the world. So if you're in North America, um, chances are you're using NTSC. In a lot of Europe, they're using PAL. In some parts of Europe and um, you know, places kind of related to France, they use CCAM. But NTSC and PAL were the major ones. I think PAL was the largest around the world, but NTSC was, uh, was second. It was, it was you know, even in places in Europe. And what that meant is if you had an NTSC tape, you couldn't sell it in a PAL country. If you had a CCAM tape, you couldn't sell it in an NTSC country. 
And that provided a natural form of market segmentation, because if you bought a tape in the wrong country, you couldn't play it at home unless you also brought home a TV from that country. Now, media companies, particularly movie studios, like to keep like this arrangement. They wanted to keep the practice of selling to different markets at different prices. In fact, they wanted to increase it. They wanted to make it even even more difficult to move DVDs and stuff between countries. And so on DVDs, they included something called a region code, which was designed to lock DVD players and DVDs to one of seven regions. Uh, the idea is if you were in region one, that was like you know the United States. If you're in region seven, maybe that's India. I don't know. I, I don't know what the regions were specifically anymore, but the idea being if I went on vacation to India and I found a shop selling a bunch of DVDs for a really good price, I couldn't buy a dozen of them and bring them home and play them. Um, and the, the DVD player would enforce that. Um, there may have been or be at some point DVD players that didn't, but in the early days they all did. If you got a DVD-ROM drive in your computer in those days, it was able to change region coding, but only a fixed number of times. I think it was five times you could change the region coding. And once it was changed to that coding, that was it. You couldn't change it to something else. So for them, it was good, right? It, it You can understand why they would want to do that, because then they could go to countries that had a weaker currency and sell it for cheaper and stronger currencies and sell it for more. And regions of the world were kind of a, a rough approximation of that. You could also understand why, as a consumer, it wouldn't be so good for you, right? Because there's no other way to get this content except for the official channel where they're selling at a higher price, potentially in your country. Um, and I, I question, to a certain extent, um, the legality of it. Uh, I, I don't know how legal it is to enforce those sort of price differences. Uh, it seems like there's a pretty good amount of legal authority on the uh, part of manufacturers to dictate certain things about prices, at least what prices are advertised as, but I don't think they can actually control the pricing. So uh, it's something I'd like to learn more about. I couldn't find too much about that concept. Um, I remember reading some stuff about it years ago, but um, but I couldn't find anything when I was looking around, putting putting my notes together tonight. Uh, so, they had these DVD region codes, and this was done by the DVD Copy Control Association. It was an, the, the Copy Control Association was an industry group that licensed uh, the DVD decryption code, and was related to the, the organization that licensed the DVD logo. Um, they didn't license this decryption code to just anyone. Obviously, to DVD manufacturers, they would license it because you needed to play, and some companies that produced DVD playback software for Windows and Mac OS. And those companies only operate a market share. So if you're on a less common operating system like Solaris, BSD, Linux, uh, some of the, the computer operating systems that weren't necessarily as common, uh, AIX would be another one. I think SGI was probably still around at that time. right? Silicon Graphics, they, they did the really cool stuff for, uh, for movies. Um, if, if you were on one of those, you wouldn't be able to play back a DVD on your computer. And that's something you may legitimately want to do. And so in 1999, some programmers were working on how to do this sort of thing, and one or two of them figured out how to decrypt DVDs by looking at the, I think it was called Zine Media Player, 
Um, it was a it could play back DVDs along with other video formats in Windows. They were able to look at it and figure out how the decryption worked, and released DCSS as part of a program to rip DVDs into video files to take the video files and turn them on the DVD that are encoded, and turn them into a regular video file that could be played back. Now, clearly, that's uh, not not as straightforward and legal as if they had. Uh, created solely a playback program um, because you can make a lossless copy of the DVD. Now you might do that because you want to back up your DVD collection in some way in case it gets damaged. Hard to do in that era of time given the price of hard drives but a few years later it really wasn't that big of a deal especially as better um, video coding technology came out. That said, um, it's certainly a legitimate, legitimate use case. Maybe you had some other cheaper medium, like you had tape drives or something you could copy the DVDs to. Um, maybe you just want to watch it, and you want to watch it on a computer that doesn't support Windows or whatever. Um, that would be another reason to do it. Um, you know, you, you, could, you could use the same code not just for ripping, but for this playback purpose, and that's actually still used to this day for that purpose in some places. Um, there have been injunctions against this code for quite a while, and it's still out there. It's very easy to find. Um, so I guess I'm kind of jumping the gun on this, but that's that's what happened, right? The DVD CCA sued the programmer behind the GUI. The person who actually figured out how to do the decryption, well, that person stayed anonymous. Interestingly, um, not too long after that, People found some serious flaws with the content scrambling system, the CSS um, code that that uh, encrypted these DVDs, and that made it pretty easy to break the encryption automatically. So even if you didn't have the special hidden keys from this media player program that had been leaked out, you could, on a computer at the time, in about 24 hours, derive that for yourself. Um, and even... Even beyond that, like as computers have progressed, you could probably do it in a few seconds in 2020 on a on a common desktop or laptop computer. So um, the DVD CCA eventually more or less gave up on keeping DVD secure. Now, in theory, they still enforce this, but in practice, they sort of gave up. You know, their original lawsuit in 2004, they dropped it. Um, they moved on to Blu-ray and had pretty much the same thing happen uh, where where the encryption keys were eventually broken out. And that's typically what happens if you've got um, digital rights management, which is what DCSS is. It's a, or C CSS, rather, is a, a form of digital rights management where you try to use encryption to only allow authorized people to view your file or you know, watch a movie, whatever. And if you remember our discussion on encryption, and if you haven't listened to that, I recommend you go back and listen to it because you'll learn a lot about how this stuff works because people tend to summarize and use analogies that don't necessarily fit. So if you go look at, if you go listen to that, um, I, I give kind of a good high level understanding of how this encryption stuff works so that you can analyze this much more accurately than with you know, these uh, these metaphors that people typically use, or just assumptions that get made that maybe aren't quite valid. Uh, so, the, the Judge Kaplan found that under the DMCA, this was a publication of a circumvention device. Now, I, I think previously I've talked about how 
Technically, at one point, you could claim that a Sharpie was a circumvention device and therefore illegal under the DMCA. Um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a funny claim, but it, it kind of makes sense, right? The the idea being that there's a certain type of CD that used copy protection, and you could bypass it by making a black mark on the outer edge of the CD, you know, outer little segment there that would cause it to miss the outer table of contents, and it would go to a more inner table of contents, and in so doing, it would work in, in your computer, whereas it wouldn't before, allowing you to create MP3s or whatever. That, um, that would make it a circumvention device for copy prevention. Uh, that would really only apply, though, if you were selling them as CD copy markers instead of just regular markers, right? And in terms of a real legal analysis, I don't think you could sue to shut down any permanent marker company unless they were purposely marketing for that purpose. Um, so there, th th this is what happened, right? So you had this um, publication and... Um, now, it, one of the links that's in the um, in the show notes mentions Eric Corley, also known as Emmanuel Goldstein, from the publication 2600. It erroneously says that he was let off for, for his publishing of the DCSS source code. And that's not true. He was actually blocked from doing that. Uh, and there was a, an interesting ruling about hyperlinks where... It, it said that if you link to a site that just has DCSS or directly downloads, it directly shows it on your screen, and that's it. That's the same thing as publishing it. It's a it's an interesting and somewhat bothersome rule in the age of the Internet because hyperlinks are so common, so easy, and you don't necessarily have control of what's on the other end. We'll get into what how I would, would talk about that as a legal analysis in a second. There was a different ruling in 1999, though, that held the following, and this is a quote. This court can find no meaningful difference between computer language, particularly high-level languages, as defined above, and German or French. Like music and mathematical equations, computer language is just that, language, and it communicates information either to a computer or to those who can read it. So this is... Uh, this is a case that uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, was involved in. They're a um, kind of electronic civil liberties group, and they had been involved in this case and were able to come out on top of it and, and help kind of increase the level of freedom around technology. That's what their goal is. And when you look at this, um, it makes the argument that code is speech, that computer source code is speech. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It expresses ideas, and it's written in such a way that a computer can understand it, but it's also written so that another programmer can understand it, because most programs aren't written once and thrown away and never touched again. People come back and update them later. And so you, part of the job of any programmer is to be able to communicate with future programmers or themselves in future months. So they put in comments, they put in uh, variable names that are easy to understand, and they try to write programs that are easy to update. Writing easy-to-update programs is hard, but that's one of the goals. And that shows you that this is a form of communication, right? You want to write it in a way that someone else can read it. And so this line of thought, that code is speech, or perhaps 
code is distinct from speech, and the the program version of the run, version of it that can run on your computer maybe is distinct from speech or maybe isn't, led to something really interesting that happened in the DCSS case. Um, I've linked to a gallery of different versions of this DCSS source code that was put together by a university. Uh, it was put together by um, Carnegie Mellon University um, by a professor in the computer science department Dr. David S. Turetsky, uh, and he's got a ton of links on there to not only that, but related news stories. So if you want to learn a lot about what happened, a lot of primary sources here, um, you know, you've got sources ranging from the Washington Post to Slashdot to the Chronicle of Higher Education to Linux Today to the Hollywood Reporter to the Associated Press. I mean, this was a pretty wide... Um, widely circulated story and it had some pretty interesting implications. So what's on this gallery? Well, I mean all kinds of stuff. There's pictures of the code written out in uh, C, I think it is. And there are t-shirts. There's mathematical descriptions. My favorite, and I don't know if it's on here, was a song that was created. Um, there's a <laughs> Just looking here, there's a DMCA tie or a uh, DCSS tie that may or may not be in violation of the DMC. There's a dramatic reading by someone. Uh, I really like the fact that someone put a song together. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear someone try to sing source code um, to someone else. You know, it's uh, source code is meant to be written and, and not necessarily sung. So it's it's interesting someone put that together. And in a way, that's a that's a pretty decent song. I've linked to the uh link to it one of the versions of it i think i've heard a different version of it as well uh so uh, really really cool that, that that kind of protest became you know songs and t-shirts and stuff that we don't like this ruling and we're gonna push the limits on it and it kind of comes to this idea of what are the limits of code as speech because one judge in 1999 actually found that it was and then Another found that maybe the executable version of the code wasn't. But there are a lot of things that get to be tricky with that. Um, well, there, there are programming languages that are called interpreted languages, and they don't make a distinction between the version that's written as source code and the version that runs. The in, it interprets as it goes. There's not two separate forms of the program, a runnable version and a human-readable version. Uh, the most, most well-known languages... Uh, like that are probably JavaScript and Python, uh, maybe basic if uh, if you're into old computers. Um, so those those languages they don't have a separate form, um, and so that that becomes something interesting, right? Because now we can't really make the distinction if I use that kind of language between the form that can run and the source code form. Um, you know, and and the particular source code in question was. Um, was banned um, by by the court. Um, so maybe it is possible for the court, at least under that ruling, to ban programs. But you know, is it speech? Could I, what if I wrote a program, or what if you wrote a program, what if someone wrote a program that were to parody or criticize a political figure? Right? You don't like the prime minister of Great Britain. So you write a program that shows his mouth flapping open and you can you know make him say stuff you think is funny. You know that and 
you know, he, he reads out stuff that are silly quotes and says like, don't vote for me. Um, certainly, you know, that, that might be different in UK law. They're, they're very different than the United States, but certainly if you did that with the president of the United States or a state governor or a congressman, that's pretty clearly protected under the first amendment. On the other side of it, what if I wrote a utility that searches within files, right? Looks for certain patterns, or I wrote a program that were to, um, allows you to enter text, just a very simple utility. Is that speech? Is it making a point? Or is it purely operational? Can the government order someone to create a computer program? If code is speech, is that compelled speech? That was the the question in the Apple um, iPhone decryption thing that happened in 2016, where the government wanted to compel Apple to create a weaker version of their software to make it easier for them to get data, and Apple said they didn't want to. Um, now, the government found another way out of it because public opinion wasn't on their side, despite the fact that both presidential candidates that the major party at the, at the time were in favor of this uh, course of action. I was pretty strongly opposed to it. I, I, I was on the side of Apple in that one that we shouldn't be making it easier to break security. It's already easy enough. It's already hard enough to stay secure without that software existing and possibly falling into the wrong hands, whoever that is. But is it compelled speech, having a software engineer do that? It's hard to say. So we have to look at it as a legal question. There's a great essay by Matthew Scala. It's his most popular essay, and he's written some other very interesting ones. It's called, What are the Color of Your Bits? And what it does is it analyzes the way that you know computer programmers tend to look at these issues versus the way lawyers tend to look at these issues. Um, and I, I kind of feel like the computer programmer version is a very similar thing to any sort of amateur lawyer version of how you analyze legal issues, right? It's always about gotchas and technicalities. And while that does exist in the law, um, that's not really how the law looks at things. Um, so the, the, the kind of key premise is that how something is created matters in terms of its copyright. So if I if I sing a song and I record it, that's copyrighted. If I write a sentence, it's copyrighted because I wrote it. If you wrote the same sentence, the computer can't really tell the difference between your sentence and my sentence if they're both typed in a text file. But the the law would distinguish between the two of them, even though they're functionally identical because I wrote one and you wrote one, they're two separate things. And that's that's kind of the hard point to think about when you think about, well, the computer can't tell the difference apart, so how am I supposed to deal with that? And people kind of on the law side of the spectrum tend to feel like computers should match their expectations for the world, and people who work with computers feel like the expectations for the world should include what is technologically possible, the sort of information we actually do store. We don't keep detailed audit records of every single thing that happens. right? We, we try to throw out as much data as we reasonably can 
so that we can save space and send things quickly. Um, so legal analyses are going to include things like the state of the mind, state of mind of a person, right? Did they have a malicious intent? Um, in this case, writing code, but in criminal law, right? If if you were to hit someone with a car, if you were doing it on purpose, that's a very different crime than if you did it by accident. Um, like lies with copyright. If I was born on a, you know, an island in 1950 or 1945, and I spoke English, and I learned how to play the guitar, but we didn't have radios, we didn't have televisions, we were isolated from the rest of the world. And I wrote a song that sounded really similar to the Beatles song, Love Me Do, but I never had any contact with the Beatles or their music. I wouldn't be violating their copyright because I came upon it independently. However, if I had heard it before, or I'd heard someone else singing it, even if it wasn't the Beatles then I'm kind of tainted, and I am violating their copyright. And so the this idea of having heard something versus not heard something means that despite the fact that the song hasn't changed, my mind, my experience has changed, and that changes the outcome of things. That changes the legal outcome, the legal status. So you you have to look at that. You have to look at the intent. You have to look at why and how it came to be. And you have to look at the nature of the communication. Is it substantive or is it transactional? Right? Can you copyright the phrase, please pass the salt? Probably not. It's pretty transactional, despite the fact that a million people have said it. It's a very transactional thing. Um, what kind of point is being expressed? Political speech tends to have a much higher degree of protection under the First Amendment than other forms of speech, for good reason. right? If people have political ideas, we want them to be free to express them and, and have a dialogue. We don't want to squelch thinking and alienate people because of their, their ideas. right? We want to have a, a good, robust debate and come up with the best ideas, and you can't do that if only certain ideas are allowed. Um, another part of it is, could the other person receive the meaning? So, if as a political statement, I'm uh, buying a bunch of illegal stuff, the chance of me doing that as a, as a political statement or as a societal statement towards someone else and them understanding that are probably pretty low in most cases. Maybe non-zero, and, and maybe there is some level of protection against, uh, against me being prosecuted if I can really show that that's the case. I didn't have any malicious intent, and it, it wasn't a real criminal act because I was immediately turning it into the police. I mean, I, I don't know, but could the other person receive the meaning? Or is it just some transaction that happens? Is it just an engineering decision? Those things all matter. And so going back to the DCSS story, I think the really tough thing about this is that in doing that analysis the group that was discussing how to do this was trying to make it possible to play DVDs uh, on Linux, I believe it was. Which I think is probably pretty legitimate use. There's no malicious intent there. But the thing that got released with the source code wasn't that. It was 
something that made it easier to share videos you didn't have a license to share. And so that definitely taints this whole thing. And then the source code, once it was out there, was forever tainted with that, that history. Now, under the DMCA, would that have still been a problem if it had been used for three years first for just playing back DVDs and then someone decided to use it to copy illegally? I don't know. Uh, you know, there's some interesting discussions in the, the case involving 2600 about fair use. And one of the things they said is that just because this prevents you from having a clean copy of the image doesn't prevent you from the normal fair use things like criticism. Um, and I, I feel like that ruling could kind of go two ways. And I, I don't really have my thoughts formed on that yet, but the idea that um, the idea that the change in quality doesn't matter in terms of copyright would also mean that the fact that I made a perfect copy for the purpose of criticism also doesn't matter necessarily for fair use. And I guess if you look at the four factors, and again, listen to the, the copyright episodes if you're interested in that, I think you'll find that you know the, the quality of the copy doesn't really play very much into those four factors. The only one it might is the market potential for that you're displacing by your use of this work. Uh, if you're showing a substantial amount of key scenes and whatever, then you could potentially get into a situation where that matters. Um, the most interesting thing I took out of this whole line of thought tonight is the idea that the message is not the medium, right? I'm, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the message is the medium. It comes from a Canadian man named Marshall McLuhan, and his idea was that you should analyze the communications medium itself, not the message it carries, when you do a study because um, the the media itself, the medium itself is is a reflection of society. But I think um, I think of this a little bit differently. The message is not the medium, but the medium may be critical to the message. Now McLuhan's contention is that the message of whatever medium you're looking at is that it the way it forces you to look at the world right and in the example on the wikipedia page is that movies take you from a sequential world to one that's a little bit more creative and things can happen in any order right flashbacks flash forwards and and skipping through time uh, where uninteresting things are happening in the story right you don't you don't have movies where someone drives for 6 hours and that's 6 hours of film you see maybe a, a quick montage of the drive. Uh, now, I do think that that is part of it, but when we start analyzing this with this whole you know, kind of source code concept, the message is really in what the program does. That's the important, one of the most important things. It might be that that's the best way to express the idea. And if you're trying to express it in a way that a computer understands, well, source code is the way to do it. Maybe the only way. You could pick different programming languages, but you have to pick a programming language or some kind of low-level binary computer code. But you start looking at that, right? And 
the medium is critical to the message there, but the message is really what's being done, why it's being done, and the context it's being done in. There's a lot more to it if you're really going to analyze any of these situations and, and put something behind it. So I guess in the end I'll say I find the whole DCSS situation and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act very interesting. Um, I feel like it's a shame because the software itself was very useful for legitimate purposes. However, it ended up being used for maybe less legitimate purposes. And so the first test of the DMCA was in a fairly clear-cut case. And that that means that the DMCA never got a large amount of difficult testing at the beginning. And I think that probably shaped how it works. And the world we live in today is strongly shaped by the DMCA. Every few years, the Library of Congress releases their list of copyright circumventions that are legal. There's a lot of legal gray area, and works are lost to history because of copy protection. Uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has the safe harbor provision, which is probably the part I think is best in it. It gives companies a way to not take on the legal liability for what their customers or users are doing when they put something online. There's a move right now in Congress to remove that protection from companies if they don't weaken their encryption. Now, they don't phrase it that way, but that would be the end effect of it. This this bill is called the Earned Act, and if you are a constituent of a United States congressperson, I'd ask you to take a look at it and see if it's something that you support. And if it's not, uh, or if it is, for that matter, write your congressperson and let them know what you think. I think encryption matters. I think the interaction between the computer world and copyright, the interaction between copyright and the real world, and the interaction between encryption and the real world are incredibly important. Having good cryptography is an important thing. And if we're smart about it and we can use it the right way, we can have a safer, more secure, and more free society. And if we don't, I see things going in a worse direction than if, if, we, if we do a good job with this. I think that right now, the math we have only allows for us to have secure encryption or insecure encryption. There's no semi-secure where you have secure plus a backdoor. And if anything, our institutions have shown us historically that if you have a skeleton key, it won't stay in the good guy's hands. And so we should focus on having secure encryption and keeping everyone safe. Thanks for listening this evening. I hope this evening has found you well. My name is Josh. This is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.